Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, bringing you clear insight every two weeks in an age of increasingly dynamic risk and intensifying connectivity. As the Brexit trade deal negotiations between the EU and the UK enter their final stretch, whether a deal can be reached and what the nature of that deal would be all remains uncertain. Highly politicized issues as yet unresolved include disputes over government support of business and fishing rights. Meanwhile, trust between the two parties has been eroded by the UK's pursuit of plans that would override parts of the withdrawal agreement regarding Northern Ireland. Both sides say they want a deal, but both sides still seem intent on trying to corner the other into their deal. As a result, we have non-stop brinksmanship and the clock is still ticking. What does all this 11th hour uncertainty mean for business? Joining me today are three people who have been living and breathing Brexit from even before the referendum ballots were cast. Joining from London is Alexandra Keller, who along with her work in Europe, is also our lead UK analyst. Zandra, welcome. Great to be here, Chuck. Also joining from London, or more precisely from her home in Cambridge, is Oksana Antonenka, a director in our political risk consultancy for Europe. Oksana, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Good to be with you. And dialing in from Frankfurt is Florian Otto. Florian's an associate director in our European political risk practice. Florian, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here today, Chuck. Zandra, could you give us a quick update on where we are now and what happens next? And also, how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the negotiations? So we find ourselves with less than three months until the end of the transition period is due on the 31st of December. But talks are still going in terms of a deal on that future relationship between the UK and the EU. The UK had set the 15th of October as its deadline for when it said it wanted a deal or it was going to walk away. It is slightly rowing back on that. And I think we're looking more at a a potential deadline of the end of October. We might see that there is kind of the shape of a deal by the 15th of October when the European Council meeting takes place. But I don't think we're going to see it done and dusted within the next few days. In terms of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, in terms of the timeline, it's actually had almost no impact. We're still really where we probably would have been if there hadn't been the pandemic. But what it has done is is change the politics. It means that in some ways, it's more important for both sides to get a deal. But it also potentially makes political positions more entrenched because there are concerns about what giving ground might mean in terms of the broader economic outlook for these member states in the EU and for the UK, given all the other uncertainty around the pandemic. You know, we've been thinking for a long time that some sort of deal would be reached. Uh, Does anybody still have any confidence in that happening? I think some sort of deal remains our base case scenario. And we are discussing this regularly and we stick to that for now. But it is still important to understand that ending up without a deal on the 1st of January 2021, either for lack of an agreement or failure to ratify an agreement on time, is a credible alternative scenario. Time is in very short supply, and for the EU, the devil's always in the detail. 
whereas the UK has pursued a more broad brush approach when outlining some of its future plans, particularly on state aid. It will be important to understand what is in the deal and what isn't. And the UK has opted to pursue a course that in 2017 would have been considered the hardest form of Brexit short of no deal. So even if the current negotiations should be concluded successfully and a deal should be in place by the time the transition period ends, this certainly won't be the end of the story. And I guess we'll be sitting together again in a couple of or several months time to discuss about the next round of negotiations. And also maybe to add to this, clearly, regardless of whether we have a deal or not, a lot of damage has already been done and it will take a very long time to overcome some of the consequences of these negotiations that have been going on for quite a long time and becoming increasingly confrontational and problematic on both sides. And I think many businesses that are looking for the longer term have already concluded that the outcome is going to be the most risky of what they expected a few years ago and have already made decisions that are going to impact the future of the UK economy for many years to come. No matter how intense these negotiations are between Brussels and London, one of the things that we do understand is that they're not taking place in a vacuum. This will impact the rest of the EU. It will have an impact on the United States. China, Japan has just signed a trade agreement with the UK. What are the broader risks and the geopolitical risks associated with the Brexit negotiations outside of the UK and you know, political circles in Brussels? Of course, Brexit is going to have very profound geopolitical consequences. And these consequences are true for both the European Union and for the United Kingdom. For the European Union, Brexit is already impacting EU plans for strategic autonomy, for developing an independent posture in the world to solve the key areas and, and issues of importance to the European Union. UK had contributed one of the largest military force to the EU, also had a very strong intelligence capabilities and history and clout in the Middle East, Africa and other important areas of the world. Of course, UK also brought the relationship with the United States that had been particularly important at the time of growing geopolitical uncertainty. And all of that now will not be available to the European Union. So the process of elaborating and implementing the strategic autonomy will be much more complicated. And of course, for the United Kingdom, the ability to pursue its national interests globally will be very different after Brexit than it has been before the United Kingdom left the European Union. First of all, of course, the UK no longer can rely on support from the European Union for advancing its own important interests, be it in relationship with Hong Kong or in the Middle East, or in fact, in relationship with countries like Russia. Secondly, the United Kingdom has lost its role as an important link between the European Union and the United States, and therefore is no longer able to exercise this influence on policy in both of those important geopolitical poles. And finally, of course, the United Kingdom is no longer able to influence the EU policy in its neighborhood, where UK played a particularly important role, for example, in supporting sanctions vis-a-vis -vis Russia or supporting EU's policy in the Middle East or, of course, also in Northern Africa. So all of those issues are important for the United Kingdom, which will be now struggling to implement much more unilateralist foreign policy with much more limited resources. Particularly for those in favor of free trade and keeping the EU economy as open as possible to foreign investment. And I'm thinking about the Scandinavian countries, I'm thinking about the Netherlands, I'm thinking about the Baltic countries. 
the UK's departure has already been a big loss. And, you know, I guess also for a country like Germany, it needs to become even more a balancing force trying to find compromises because the large member state that was pursuing very much a free trade agenda was traditionally less interventionist in terms of economic policy that is now out. This dynamic will impact relations within the EU for the foreseeable future. I think in, in economic terms, and we'll come back to that later on, the debate about the economic damage to member states has been overtaken by the COVID-19 pandemic. As Zandra said rightly, none of the parties involved can actually afford even stronger economic headwinds, but it also has become much more difficult to establish how big the hit is actually going to be because an external shock of you know such an basically unprecedented magnitude like the COVID-19 pandemic is overshadowing such considerations at the member state level. You mentioned the UK-Japan trade deal that was concluded and actually presented some really great achievement from the UK's perspective because it could be concluded in a fairly short amount of time. It is probably more important for its geopolitical implications than for actually what it will add to the UK economy. In this regard, the UK is an important ally for Japan, particularly when it comes to containing Chinese influence in the wider Pacific region. And for the UK, this trade deal opens up a pathway towards joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which also includes Australia, Canada, Mexico, New Zealand and Singapore. What will be interesting here is whether the provisions on state subsidies and competition included in the revised TPP will be easier to stomach for London than Brussels' current demands in that regard. And I think also when we think about, you know, the wider relationship between the UK and Japan, any move by the UK government that calls into question that the UK will abide by treaty commitments would be a major headache for Tokyo because Tokyo shares one goal with Brussels and that is preserving a rules-based international order. We want to get to the implications for business pretty soon. But before we do that, Zandra, I've got a list in front of me of the main sticking points. It's not that long, actually, but I don't think that the brevity of the list makes it any less complicated. Let's start off with the first one and let's try to tick through this list and determine which ones really matter and which ones might actually be dispatched with. And let's just start with the first one, Zandra, and that's fishing rights. So fishing rights matters in that it could essentially prevent a deal from happening. It is hugely politically salient, both for the UK, but also for some EU member states. Having said that, it is a relatively short-term political headache for both sides. It is symbolic because it was part of the Brexit campaign in terms of pro-Brexit campaigners made a huge deal of how the UK could kind of take back control of its waters. And let's remember that fishing rights have been a kind of totemic issue for decades, even though the fishing industry is a tiny, tiny percentage of GDP for the UK. Meanwhile, on the European side, for a handful of countries, it's very important politically for the governments because they equally have these fishing lobbies that will be very angry if they cannot go into British waters anymore. But as I say, I think that's quite a short term issue and I think if that can be overcome via some sort of mathematical magic, then that can be put to one side. What about state aid and competition rules? How genuinely thorny is that? This, I think, is a more fundamental 
issue that has much bigger consequences for the EU and what it stands for. The EU sees itself as a global leader in terms of creating that rules-based international order, and it certainly isn't going to want to look like it's happy to give up on that very easily. If we put it in very basic terms, I think on fishing rights, it's the EU that needs to to give some ground. But on state aid, it's really the UK that is going to have to make the compromise here. Not necessarily to sign up to everything the EU wants, but the key thing is that there has to be a dispute settlement mechanism. So the UK will not want to sign up to everything that the EU does in terms of state aid and other regulatory things, but it will need to show the EU that there is a way that they can get past any disputes on this issue in the future. This is the headline grabbing item, the move of a few weeks ago that looks as if the UK is preparing to break the Northern Ireland Treaty and to rupture the withdrawal agreement. How big a shock was that to negotiations and how much of an obstacle does it continue to present? I think it had a very immediate shock factor in terms of the way that the EU received it and basically felt that this was a move of bad faith that undermined everything that they were working towards. Having said that, in terms of the practical negotiations that are going on now, these are not the issues that will stop a deal being done on the future relationship. However, it certainly undermines trust between the two sides. And that's why I think things like this dispute settlement mechanism that I was talking about a moment ago is so will be even more important for the EU because they will not be prepared to just go on trust, basically. The money question for everybody. What are the implications for business? And I'll tack on to that. Whatever the implications are, what kind of economy will we all be playing in as negotiations finally conclude? I think those two questions are very much uh, uh, interconnected. Clearly, for businesses, the key priority is to have more clarity and predictability. This predictability has been missing now for some time, not only because of great uncertainty over Brexit, but now increasingly the great uncertainty of how the economic recovery post the COVID crisis is going to look like for many businesses. Businesses expect more disruption. And of course, this disruption that already exists to supply chains, to trade, to communications, to travel is going to be augmented by further disruption, which is going to come from new regulations for crossing the borders, new necessity to understand how the tariffs are going to be administered. And of course, the new necessity, particularly for small and medium-sized businesses, to be able to plan ahead to maybe change their partners and clients and, and, and distributors on the other side, be it in the UK or in the European Union. So all of that is very disruptive. Secondly, I think for businesses, it is important to also understand what they should be doing in the long run. And here, I think there is even more uncertainty than it is in the short term, because at least in the short term, there is now active measures that are being implemented by the UK government, by the governments of the Netherlands, of France, of Germany, to be able to mitigate the potential short-term disruption. But in the longer term, there's still a great deal of uncertainty, for example, how the United Kingdom is going to tackle the necessary structural reforms or changes to the economy that will need to be implemented as a result of the COVID crisis. And that, of course, together, with Brexit prevents a lot of businesses from making investment decisions. And that is also true very much for the foreign investment. 
for many American, Japanese, or even Chinese companies that are currently looking at the European market, but particularly at the UK market, the degree of uncertainty is so great that they will be very careful in making decisions. And finally, I think another issue which is very important is that we are likely to see, and we're already seeing, a great deal of social impact and instability as a result of the COVID disruption. The unemployment, both in Europe and particularly in the United Kingdom, is the highest for many, many years and is likely to grow further. So the impact of Brexit is going to increase the social instability even further. And for many businesses that are facing a number of challenges around impacts of social scrutiny on their activities, it's going to be further multiplied by this COVID and Brexit impacts on the economy. Florian, you're dialing in from Frankfurt. What is the business community saying? What are people saying there on the mainland? In many ways, for example, German businesses have, well, are resigned to the fact that the future relationship between the UK and the EU will be a rather distant one, even if a deal is concluded. And as a result, we have heard about plans for dealing with longer supply chains, that is planning for disruptions at borders, which means you need to stockpile more. That in turn, you know, for just-in-time supply chains makes the UK a less attractive country to have part of your supply chain in. Others have, as Oksana mentioned, started to either put investment on hold or have actually rerouted investment to make sure that as they go through what for many is a painful transition process now that is being accelerated by the pandemic, that they make sure that they adjust their business models and come out of this in hopefully better shape. Maybe that is one of the challenges that isn't discussed often enough. A lot of companies are currently revisiting their business models. They are changed to do that, and they also have to think about their big objectives, where they're going. And if the UK has played a significant role in that, when you're dealing with lots of uncertainty all around, you will probably try to reduce the uncertainty where you have some leverage there. And it will be interesting to see how this plays out. But given that we are moving towards a pretty basic trade deal in many ways and not, you know, the, the close alignment that businesses on both sides of the channel have sought, at least in the short term, we're likely to see more preparations for a more distant relationship and less interaction. Zandra, you're in London. You're our lead UK analyst. Last word to you. I think echoing everything that Oksana and Florian have said, it's that things are going to change whatever happens with this agreement. Businesses will need to prepare for a period of flux that could potentially last for a long time because there will still be issues that are being addressed and, and readdressed in the coming years. This certainly is not over yet by a long shot. Let me wrap up by thanking my colleagues. Florian Otto, thank you very, very much for dialing in from Frankfurt. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Oksana, great to hear from you. Thanks for joining from Cambridge. Thank you. And Zandra, thank you very, very much for joining. You're not too far away from us here in London. Thanks, Chuck. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you 
and goodbye for now. 